You should open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. This is the sermon I was going to preach the week that we got snowed out. And um, then this morning I was out driving along the roads wondering whether we should have service this morning and thinking that either the devil doesn't want me to preach a sermon or it's not very good and God doesn't want me to preach a sermon. <laughs> I'm not sure which. We play a game at our house called Ticket to Ride. And the game's played on a board where railroad routes are outlined to cities all over the country on a map. The board is a map. And each player draws three routes on cards, and each route is worth a varying number of points depending on the length of the route. But only the player knows which cards he's drawn, which routes he has to fill, and how, much, how many points they're worth. Then he must fill in the line between the cities on his route. He can draw more route cards whenever he wants, but if he doesn't complete a route, the points allotted to it will be deducted from his total at the end of the game. Now, besides that, so there's the points on the cards for the routes. Besides that, um, players get to move forward spaces on the board as they complete segments of their routes complete a three segments of a route, and you move ahead four places, which equals four points. Complete a four-segment route, and you move ahead seven spaces. A five-segment completion, ten spaces. You get the idea. So as the game goes on, one player will move ahead of another and then be supplanted by a third, and there are a total of 100 spaces on the board, and by the end of play, one of us will have moved maybe 40 or 50 spaces altogether. Someone else will have moved maybe 80 or 85 but where one is at the end of play doesn't determine the winner because it's not just the points that are on the board, but the points added or deducted from those route cards. The person who's in last place on the board may even turn out to be the winner because he secretly completed the most routes. <clears throat> okay, now I know you all want to go out and buy this game, right? In life, people measure their success by how they compare to others playing the game. He buys a new car, and he moves up three spaces. She gets a new job and moves four. They get married, and they move 15 spaces, or buy a house and move another 10. People move ahead, or they fall behind throughout life, and then a person dies, and the game ends. But even in life, it's impossible to measure success while the game's still in play. After the last card is played and the final move made, there remains treasure in heaven to be counted. Like in Ticket to Ride, if you focus solely on what you've attained in comparison to other people, you're going to lose. You have to be concerned about tallying the rewards at the end. With that in mind, let me read our passage, which is Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through verse 33. Matthew 6, 19 through 33. <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. 
Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right, seek his kingdom. That's what we want to think about today. We've been thinking about the kingdom of God. Now we want to think about how to seek it. We've seen how an understanding of the kingdom of God makes sense of the scriptures, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But can it also make sense of our lives? What's our relationship to the kingdom of God today? We need to know because Jesus tells us that when we're rightly oriented to the kingdom, everything else falls into place. When we're wrongly oriented to the kingdom, nothing else fits. Now, there's useful advice in this passage that we've just read. Some people will read it and think it's just idealistic, it's impractical, but kingdom seekers will find it realistic and rock solid. But the instructions here are not just good advice for living simply in a complex world or living spiritually in an earthly one. This is about how to live as Jesus' person in the kingdom of God. Take it out of that context, and this teaching is not viable. It becomes utterly impractical. See, there are two ways to live in this world. Live out of your fears and focus solely on your needs, which is what the prince of the power of the air, the de facto leader of the occupational forces on earth, wants you to do. Live that way, and you'll never be a threat to the devil. The person who lives out of fear and focuses solely on needs, you know, he may go to church, and profess Christ, and even write books and newspaper articles. But he's just making noise. He's like a barking dog chained to a post. He may sound dangerous, but he isn't going to do anything. But we needn't live out of our fears and focused on our needs. There's another way to live. Out of our Father's abundance, focused on his kingdom and righteousness. Live that way, and you'll become a dangerous person. The powers of darkness tremble before the little old lady confined to her tiny apartment who lives for God's kingdom and for his righteousness. They fear her in a way that they will never fear the great movers and shakers of the world. Now, this part of the Sermon on the Mount has been summarized by a well-known Bible scholar this way. 
One should not value possessions enough to seek them or enough to worry about them because God will provide one's basic needs. Well, that's not wrong, but it's rather like summarizing Virgil's The Aeneid by saying it's a travelogue about some guy's trip from Turkey to Italy. You know, that's true, but there's so much more to it than that. In chapter 6, Jesus drives home the point that God is watching over his people, the people of his kingdom. The king, who is their heavenly father, is looking out for them. They don't have to be afraid. They can stop worrying about making an impression, and they can start making a difference. They don't have to play the game that everyone else is playing to win prestige or security because they know they have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for them. They can invest in heaven without fear of losing earth because their investments are guaranteed by the OFIH, the Our Father in Heaven. You have often heard people say, usually in an appeal to go out and evangelize, that the only thing that you can take with you to heaven is another soul. That's not quite true. You can take a bigger soul, your soul, enlarged, empowered, and transformed. Remember that just before this, Jesus three times repeats the phrase, your father will reward you. What kind of reward did he have in mind? Are heaven's rewards like earth's rewards? Like the bonus some top-tier CEO receives? But instead of a house in Malibu, we get a mansion in glory. Instead of stock options, we get a crown of gold. I don't think so. The chief reward God gives, I think, happens inside of you, in your soul. You are transformed into a certain kind of person, one whose earthly life is a joy and a blessing and whose heavenly future will bear a weight of glory that is unimaginable now. You are your reward. And it's a reward that God loves to give. You, the real you, full of life, glorified and glorious, transformed and beautiful. You don't have to play the game everyone else is playing. You don't have to scratch and claw your way to success in somebody else's eyes. Because your heavenly Father is looking out for you, you can dare to invest in heaven. That's why Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, if what happens on the game board of earth is all there is, then Jesus' teaching here is just spiritual hot air. And you better get what you can get while you can get it. But as for me, I'll listen to Jesus. He's the smartest person who ever lived. He knows how to live peacefully, joyfully, and purposefully, and how to teach other people to do the same. He knows from personal experience that what happens on earth is not all that there is. He tells us not to amass earthly treasures. In the context of this chapter, one of the important treasures in the context of chapter 6 is the approval of others. How we go around trying to amass that treasure. If people will just like me and think well of me, 
It's not a lasting treasure. Another such treasure, as he's about to make clear, is money and the things it can buy. Please understand now, Jesus is telling us these things not because he wants to inhibit us. He's telling these things for our own good because he knows how life works. It's not that he doesn't want us to be admired, doesn't want us to have nice things. It's that he doesn't want us to break our hearts. Or worse, turn, to, turn our hearts to stone and make them unbreakable while we spend our lives seeking things that will never satisfy us. See, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. It's a spiritual law. Your heart follows your treasure. Where your thought, time, and resources are, your treasure, that's where your heart's going to be. Put your treasure into clothes, that's where your heart will go. Now, here's the thing. When your clothes get old and tattered, your heart will get old and tattered right along with them. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Put your treasure in cars that rust, and your heart is going to rust. It'll get brittle and ugly and flake away until there's nothing worth saving. Jesus didn't tell us this to hurt us, but to protect us. People all around us are losing heart. They're being destroyed, but from the inside out. The word that's translated destroy here is literally caused to disappear, to make invisible. That's a tragic thing when it happens to people's treasures, to their bank accounts and their 401Ks. Some of you went through that in 2008 and 2009. But it's far worse when it happens to your heart. Now we need to look at what comes next. See, what people often do is they take the sermon on the mount in little snippets. In fact, for years, scholars said, this isn't one sermon, it's little things taken and put together. But when we do that, we miss the connection between this famous passage about storing up treasure in heaven and the next less familiar one about the good and bad eye, but they are connected. There are differing interpretations as to what Jesus had in mind in verses 22 and 23 when he talks about the good, it's literally the single eye. I used to go knocking on doors and talking to people, inviting them to church, and one day some people invited me in, and they were, as they described themselves, occultists. And he said, he quoted this passage, and he said, you see, every person has an eye right in the middle of their forehead. You can't see it, but it's there, and that's where they view spiritual reality from. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. Some people think, based on Jewish usage, that the good eye represents generosity and the bad eye indicates stinginess. Others believe that the single eye indicates single-hearted allegiance to God, and that fits well with the context. But in either case, Jesus is telling us that the eye, this is what I want us to notice, is not merely passive in the process but has an active role in choosing what to focus on. The good eye focuses on the kingdom of heaven. The evil eye is blind to the kingdom of heaven and is focused on getting ahead. That's all it can see. And we know from experience that the eye is programmed to see certain things and be blind to others. Let me give you an example. We'll do a little experiment here. 
but you got to help me, okay? So follow along. The color brown's all over this room, but you probably didn't notice until right now. Now close your eyes right now. Just close your eyes and think of the room. Get it in your mind. Now I want you to actually call out everything you can think of that is the color gold. Okay, call it out. Anything that's the color gold. Uh, line on the tapestries. Okay, what else? Okay, the pad we pass around. The lamp stands on the piano. Very good. Okay, you can open your eyes. Most of you couldn't think of anything gold in the room. I'm impressed. Some of you got some. Look at the gold cross over there and the gold tassels and the hem on here and on every one of the curtains that's there and the gold lamps on the piano and the organ, the gold on the doors, all the hardware on the doors and the handles up here. See, I mentioned the color brown intentionally to make a point. I did that to condition you to think brown. The kingdom of the world has conditioned you to go through life looking for certain things, possessions, the approval of others, but it's conditioned you to look for the wrong things. And because those are the things we look for, those are the things that we see. We see that our neighbor has a newer car than we do. And immediately we're, uns we're dissatisfied. We see that our, our friend has a better job with a higher salary. We see our coworker gets more kudos from the boss than we do. We're conditioned to notice those things, but we need to be reconditioned by the renewing of our minds to ignore the trifling compensations other people strive for and see the love and care of our Heavenly Father who's watching over us. If you're old enough, if you listen to the oldie station, you may remember the Flamingo song, though it was around since the 30s, but I only have eyes for you. You remember that song? The first line is, my love must be a kind of blind love. I can't see anyone but you. See, a person's vision can be 20-20 when it comes to some things and yet be entirely blind to others. He can be blind to the kingdom of God and have an acute vision for the rewards that the world seeks. We see what we're looking for. That means some people will always see money everywhere and behind everything. Or mammon. That's the Aramaic word that Jesus uses here that refers to possessions or to wealth. Because they only have eyes for money. Other people will see the kingdom of God. Now ask yourself, what have I been conditioned to see? Based on what Jesus has just said, he tells his students not to worry. Therefore, I tell you, based on what I've just said, therefore, do not worry. But if we don't get the point that Jesus just made, I can guarantee you that we will worry. Worry-free living isn't available to everyone. It's for those who have God as their master, who see life with kingdom vision and are investing in heaven even while they're living on earth. Those people have discovered life as it's meant to be lived. They're not strangled by worry. They're not pulled apart. They're making a difference in this age and preparing themselves for the next. They may not have the best job 
or the newest car or the nicest house, but they don't think about that. Or if they do, because they will, having been conditioned by this world, they won't let themselves go on thinking about it. They've stopped keeping score. They refuse to play the game. Life is more than food and the body's more than clothes. Life in the body is an opportunity to grow, to serve the kingdom of God and live for the king. Over the years, I've heard lots of preachers say that it's a sin to worry. And following their lead, I've said the same thing based on this passage and one in St. Paul. But I've come to wonder if that's really what Jesus and St. Paul meant us to understand. I'm no longer sure that it's a sin to worry, but I am sure that it's a shame. That we don't need to worry. Worry is a consequence. It's a consequence of playing the game. It's a consequence of being distracted by the game. The root of the Greek word worry is related to the word distraction. Worry is a consequence of trying to serve two masters, focusing on the wrong things and investing in the wrong ventures. And you know what? It's absolutely impossible to stop worrying while you're doing those things. If you say, I don't want to worry so much, but I'm going to just continue doing what I do, you're going to keep on worrying. But what if we just stop playing the game? What happens if we refuse to believe the propaganda spewed out by the kingdom of the world, propaganda that promises that we can be happy if we just get a little more, if we get that thing, we'll finally be happy? What a lie that is. That we can be important if we just get someone to admire us. Just about everyone you know plays that game and is busy measuring their worth in relation to somebody else. Jesus is saying that we can stop playing the game. But if we stop, what else is there for us to do? The answer is straightforward. There's only one other game in town, the kingdom of heaven. Of course, it's not a game, it's a life. But the only way to stop playing the game is to start living the life. So Jesus tells us not to live out of our fears and focus on our needs, but, verse 33, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. It is possible. You can learn to recognize I'm living out of my fears. I'm focused on my needs. You can learn that and change it. Now, two questions. One, why do we have to seek to look for his kingdom? And two, how does one go about doing that? How do you look for a kingdom? First question, why do we have to seek it? I mean, shouldn't it just be there for everyone to see? But you forget that we are living in occupied territory under enemy control. If you lived in occupied France in 1942 and you wanted to join the resistance, you decided, I'm fed up with this, I think it's wrong, I don't want this, I want to join the resistance, you would have to seek the resistance. It's the same here. People who want to join the kingdom of God must seek it. People have the ability to ignore it if they want to for the time being. 
They can go about their daily lives worrying about their daily troubles and imagining that that's all there is to it. God won't force his kingdom down anyone's throat. Anyone who chooses to be a part of the kingdom has to seek it. But how do you do that? How do you seek a kingdom? Let me give you some suggestions. Very first one is volunteer for duty. Tell God that you want a kingdom assignment and then do what he gives you to do. But keep this in mind. God operates by this principle. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. So if you say to God, I'm signing up, God, I want to do something. I want to do something for the kingdom. And God gives you something to do, like visit a sick church member or talk to a relative about Jesus or drive somebody to a doctor's appointment. Whatever it is, do it. If you won't obey in a small thing, you won't be given any more assignments. Along with that first is the second and corresponding principle. To him who has, more will be given. When I was still a fairly new Christian, I asked the pastor of our church if there was something that I could do to help. And he suggested that I paint the trim around the church education building. It it needed extensive scraping and caulking before it could be painted. So I went down to church day after day to work all by myself. It was a pretty thankless job. But I had volunteered for duty, and this was the assignment that I was given. Just maybe I'm in my 33rd year of pastoral ministry because I said yes to that job. Who knows? I don't know. But I do know that kingdom assignments are not always exciting or esteemed, but the one who's faithful and little will be given more to do. So how can you seek the kingdom? First, try volunteering for an assignment. And when God gives you one, do what you've been given to do. Second, hang around people who are known to be activists in the kingdom and learn from them. Imitate them. Do what they do. Join them when they gather. When the church comes together, it's a kingdom gathering. This is a meeting of the resistance. In the name of the prince. Third, be on the lookout for fresh recruits. Tell your friends, your family, your co-workers how good it is to be in God's kingdom. Now, probably, if you start out that way, they're going to look at you like you're from outer space. But you can find another way to say that. Tell them what God's doing in your life. Tell them what it's like to have Jesus as your leader. And invite them to join us. But most importantly, put your confidence in Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation and the leader of God's kingdom. He's the way into the kingdom. No one else has the authority to admit you. Trust him. Listen to what he says. The Bible's the easiest place to do that. And learn from him. Now, to seek the kingdom is to seek God's rule, first over your own life and then over your sphere of influence. To be in his kingdom is to be his person, under his orders, representing his name. So you're seeking his rule. But Jesus also tells us to seek his righteousness. So we seek his kingdom, his rule over us, 
and his righteousness, his character in us. And the two go together. Those who seek his kingdom are transformed in their hearts and minds. And those who are transformed in their hearts and minds see with ever-increasing clarity how to live and serve in the kingdom. All right, one final thing. We're to seek his kingdom and righteousness. First, not second. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. First can either refer to first in sequence or first in precedence. First in time or first in priority. And the the reality is, if we don't give priority to seeking his kingdom, we will never find it. Seek second the kingdom and his righteousness, and you'll be wasting your time. But that's the way God intended it. The half-hearted, the religious dabbler, the spiritual dilettante never sees the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus once said, is like a treasure hidden in a field. Any number of people can walk right over it and never know it's there. It's the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness that is filled, not the one who nibbles at it. It's he who seeks who finds, not he who daydreams. The promise is you will seek for me and you will find me when you seek for me with all your heart. If you're going to be a kingdom person, it's going to take all of you. But is entering the kingdom worth it? We're talking about a life change. Is it worth it? I think of a line by Bernard de Clairvaux. To those who fall, he's speaking to God, how kind thou art. How good to those who seek. But what of those who find? Ah, this nor tongue nor pen can show. You were made for the kingdom. Life will never work right outside the kingdom. You will never be your true self anywhere else. Is it worth it? I know the answer to that question. Yes, and a thousand times over. But I can't answer it for you. You have to answer that question for yourself. But don't stop with asking if it's worth it. Ask the more personal question, Am I worth it? I think you are. But you have to answer that question for yourself too. You'll answer that question by what you do next. Now let's pray. God, bring this home to us. Lord, I pray you speak beyond my words and by your spirit to our hearts and help us to get a glimpse of the beauty and glory of your kingdom and of ourselves living in it. And do this for the sake of your son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing. And I'm trying to figure out